Hi everybody, it's Derek, and this is Foreign Exchanges for July 26, 2019. I'm very excited to have another interview for you guys today. Uh, in a few minutes here on the Skype, I'm going to be joined by Stephen Wertheim. Uh, Stephen is the co-founder of the Quincy Institute, uh, and he's the research director of its Ending Endless War program. Uh, he's also a research scholar at the Saltzman Institute of War and Peace Studies at Columbia University. Uh, you may have seen some stories recently in the news about the Quincy Institute, which is a new uh, think tank that's foreign policy think tank that's uh, being developed uh, in D.C. It's kind of uh, rolling things out slowly, and it'll be um, fully up and, and running, I think, uh, towards the end of the year. Uh, so Stephen is one of the people behind that operation. I'm going to ask him uh, about the Quincy Institute. We're going to start off talking about U.S. foreign policy and America's role in the world, which is something that he's studied quite a bit, um, kind of to pose the question or to, to establish uh, the problem, uh, if you will, that Quincy is intended to solve. Uh, and then, you know, partway through the interview, we'll get into sort of discussing uh, how the Quincy Institute came to be, uh, what it's aiming to do, and some questions that I think people are uh, uh, having about the Institute itself and how it's set up and uh, how it plans to operate. So um, I'm looking forward to a, a good discussion with Stephen, and uh, we'll get to that in just a moment here. Okay, I'm joined here by Skype uh, by Stephen Wertheim. Uh, Stephen is one of the co-founders of the Quincy Institute and the research director of their Ending Endless Wars program, uh, among other things. Uh, Stephen, thank you for being here. Thank you so much. Great to be with you. Uh, so we're going to talk about the Quincy Institute and what it is and uh, what it aims to do. But I think what I'd like to do is... There's my dog. There we go. Uh, hey. What I'd like to do is uh, set up uh, sort of what the Quincy Institute is intended to... The problem, let's say, that the Quincy Institute is intended to solve, which I think we can boil down to one word, which is the blob. Uh, mm. <laughs> ben Rhodes famously talked about the blob back when he was working for President Obama, which is his code word for the D.C. foreign policy establishment. Um, and it's, you know, something people have picked up on since then. Uh, you are somebody, in addition to your role as the, the co-founder of the Quincy Institute, you're somebody who has studied U.S. foreign policy um, for, you know, since the, the end of World War II. And so you're, uh, you've got a pretty good handle on the way that the debate has been shaped around foreign policy in Washington, D.C. So I want to ask you first, uh, when you think about this term, the blob, which is kind of amorphous, uh, you know, literally and figuratively, I guess, uh, how do you define it? How do you sort of uh, define what, what characteristics make up uh, and are sort of fundamental to this establishment foreign policy view in Washington? Yeah, so... To return to your uh, first point, the fundamental problem is a problem with our foreign policy. Uh, it's a, a, a set of ideas that were fully articulated, I would say, at the end of the 1990s, that the United States is an indispensable nation, as Madeleine Albright, the Secretary of State, put it, uh, and that the United States 
almost as a matter of its identity, uh, must maintain military supremacy everywhere in the world at all costs for all time. Uh, and I think that basic posture uh, has plunged us into endless war. Uh, so who is it that supports this point of view? It is, as you've said, the blob. Uh, and that's a shorthand uh, for uh, also something called the foreign policy establishment, where essentially backed by a, a set of institutions in, in Washington, D.C., there's a, a bipartisan consensus around America's role in the world. Uh, and from a sociological point of view, uh, I think it's become a, apparent to an increasing number of people that uh, the particularity of uh, being a foreign policy professional in Washington, D.C. provides heavy incentives for there to be a debate around perhaps some narrow questions, but not about the larger questions uh, about America's role in the world. Uh, and so we think that uh, the Quincy Institute can be a place to incubate a different kind of foreign policy conversation that doesn't start out from the premise that the United States uh, needs to have unending military domination uh, that takes endless war, our, our, our condition of endless war, uh, as uh, a significant problem that we find today. Where, in your opinion, does does this the notion of the U.S. as the indispensable nation come from? And sort of historically, I mean, it, it it's an idea that emerges, um, you know, and I I mean, it fully emerges as you said in the in the nineteen nineties, sort of after the Cold War. Uh, there's this unipolar moment, as some people have called it, and um, you, you know there's this new sense of America as the world superpower, and, and that you know kind of lends itself to this talk of the indispensable nation. Is that how much of that is rooted in uh, the Cold War kind of sense of the United States as the defender of freedom and justice and all that stuff? Uh, how much of it comes out of a, uh, the sort of a foreign policy establishment that was geared toward the Cold War and the competition with the Soviet Union and had that mindset and then suddenly kind of had that pulled out from under them and had to redefine itself uh, for a new, a basically new world. Um, what are the, the sort of defining moments in your mind that, that lead us to the, the place where people are having this conversation about the United States as, you know, constantly needing to be the military, the dominant military force on the block. So you might pull back and say that the, I see your dog has some insights into this, yeah, probably better than mine. In. So I, what I, what I think your, your dog was getting at is um, <laughs> that <laughs> you might pull back and say that Part of the founding of the United States was a notion of American exceptionalism, that the United States was a city on, on a hill uh, at the very least that had a, a purpose in the world uh, to redeem the world. So the assumption is that the United States is maybe not the indispensable nation in terms of its foreign policy, in terms of its uh, 
military policy but as an entity has a, a crucial purpose in defining the direction of world history but as i've just suggested uh even if we accept that that's the overarching frame for how americans discuss their place in the world which maybe we shouldn't because our current president for example does not talk within that that frame uh whatever we think of the policies he pursues um but even if we think that that's the frame for american foreign policy uh, i find very few uh american leaders and intellectuals who think that the united states need to uh maintain military supremacy in the world and and police world order until relatively late in american history until uh, the eve of us entry into world war 1 so for most of american history uh yes many argued that the united states was somehow indispensable to the course of uh defining the future of the world uh but they thought that that meant that no one power should should dominate the world that the united states should incarnate a world of reason and rules uh, and transcend power politics it shouldn't be leading with force and whim uh but i think that changes as you suggest uh around world war 2 and in the cold war where american exceptionalism takes a much more interventionist form now there's an active presence a totalitarian presence in the world that's aggressive that wants to subvert the terms of liberal and US style interaction. After the Cold War ends in the total collapse of the Soviet Union though, um what then is the purpose of the United States in the world? And I think we get to the nub of the proximate problem that we face today, which is what happened in the 1990s. Why was it that the United States uh did not retrench in the face of the collapse of its Soviet enemy? uh but rather pursued uh a more uh ambitious kind of dominance than ever before that has uh Madeleine Albright proclaiming that the United States is the indispensable nation on the grounds that the United States sees farther into the future than others do you talked about the the notion of the United States kind of Uh, as the as a model for a, a world of reason and rules was was the the term you used, uh, and I wonder um, if you could talk about the development of that idea because it's still something that that U.S. policymakers talk about the notion of international law and uh, you know even when we criticize kind of international institutions although we're kind of less <laughs> there's less. this kind of support for international institutions under the Trump administration but still you know we've been critical of the UN in the past but we still kind of uh, you know uphold the idea that there should be something like that and there should be these these rules of the road uh, at the same time the united states uh never abides by it doesn't seem like it ever abides by the rules of the road that we want to lay out for other people and i don't just mean uh right now under the trump administration i mean you know when uh the united nations refused to go along with the iraq war the bush administration did it anyway uh you know we passed the authorization to use military force after 911 that basically you know the three presidents since then have used to justify the united states doing 
anything, anything it wants, really, around the world. Um, is this, is it rhetorical when U.S. policymakers talk about uh, the international order, or is there a real sense that, that the United States should, you know, adopt something like it? It seems sort of like, you know, we want the rules to apply to everybody else, but the United States should be free to do as it wants. Is there a, a kind of tension there that, that you've seen? Oh, there's a tension there. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> yes. the 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 phrase the the reigning phrase that we've heard from the establishment for the past three years, uh, basically in response to Trump, is the U.S.-led rules-based liberal international order, give or take uh, a couple of those terms. Uh, and. You know, my uh, concern is that there's a big tension between the U.S. lead part and all the rest of it. Uh, so to come back to the to the history, you know, I, I think what what happens around World War Two and in, in the Cold War is that um, American foreign policy officials uh, and uh, thought leaders, if I may use that term, I hate myself for doing so. Uh, <laughs> decide that in order to have a world of relatively decent law and order of relatively liberal rules, the United States needs to have its hegemonic force behind it. And we could certainly debate um, whether that was the case and when uh, at that time. And there was a sort of concrete logic that you can trace it, from the 1940s to the 1960s, in which the Bretton Woods system functioned in tandem with the uh, military and security policy of containment. And there was a kind of order that had a certain degree of coherence then. What I think has happened since... So the, the same sort of assumption carried over in the 1990s. Uh, at the same time, the United States was able to cut its defense budget uh, as a percentage of GDP and enjoy more dominance uh, militarily uh, over the course of the decade. That was a unique circumstance that could not be sustained. Uh, but I think it unfortunately reset our expectations uh, for U.S. foreign policy for the future. Uh, at the same time, the domestic contestation over foreign policy diminished. Uh, you know, Pat Buchanan... Ross Perot seemed to say some heterodox things, but they were easily beaten back in the 1990s. And so I think a new generation of, of experts uh, weaned on the Cold War, taking the Cold War to have been a epic world-making triumph rather than a situation in, the US, in which the U.S. lost less than the Soviet Union did. Uh, reset the very terms of our foreign policy. And that's where the notion of the U.S. as the indispensable nation comes from and connects American exceptionalism with uh, the pursuit of perpetual military primacy uh, globally and in, and in every region. Where does this notion of a world order stand today? It feels like we've gone through... Um, you know, after decades uh, during the Cold War of basically understanding the world in 
a, a certain way and, and the U.S., you know, America's place in the world versus, you know, Europe, the, the Soviet Union, etc. That that seemed relatively stable, you know, at least uh, in a macro sense. But since the end of the Cold War, it feels like we've gone in kind of <laughs> speed, you know, like sprinting fashion, like speed dating fashion through, you know, first there was the, the idea of the U.S. as the global superpower and the uh, sort of monitoring or I guess overseeing this international order. Then 9-11 kind of shifted everything into the war on terror framework and that dominated foreign policy thinking. And now we're coming out of that, it seems like, moving into this notion once again maybe of great power competition with China and possibly even, you know, kind of resurgent Russia, at least in a military sense. Uh, where, like, can, is it possible at this moment to sort of piece together when when people talk about the U.S.-led rule, you know, international order, what they're talking about, or is this something that's sort of like it means whatever the person who says that at any particular time wants it to mean? Right. I I think that the the notion of of the order has been detached from. Uh, a a referent. It is more or less a free-floating term of, of political rhetoric that I, is meant sincerely. I'm not questioning anyone's uh, uh, good faith, uh, but the notion that there is some overarching order that uh, governs the logic of foreign policy and governs the structure of international politics um, is is pretty weak at this point. And so we've seen since the 1990s a real detachment between U.S. actions, as you mentioned before, and uh, the development uh, and health of international norms, institutions, alliances, and so forth. I think all those things exist, and I you know, generally feel well disposed toward international norms, laws, and institutions, uh, to be clear. Uh, I just don't think we should reify them into one giant order, which uh, seems like an analytical mistake and then becomes politically dangerous when the United States says that in any one dispute, we should ignore what seem to be the low stakes for the United States of that dispute because somehow some larger structure is implicated. So in practice, the danger of this U.S.-led liberal international order uh, concept is that it allows the United States to uh, keep finding an enemy and inflating the actual danger that that enemy poses and thus the kinds of, and, and justifies uh, otherwise unjustifiable costs um, in taking action. So I, I think you're totally right that there's this kaleidoscopic quality from the 1990s onward, basically in my lifetime, to the grand enemies that the United States has proclaimed, the the rogue states of the 1990s, then it was the the global war on on terror and a whole uh, host of state sponsors, the axis of evil, and it's incredible now how quickly the war on terror more or less went away as the master frame, <laughs> and now we're moving we're moving into and then over the last couple of years it's now great power competition. Uh, against Russia and and China, and now China, I think, has emerged as uh, the much more serious rival in the view of the blob. Um, I think this history 
you know, our own lived history should make us very skeptical about these kinds of uh, grand proclamations. I did want to ask you uh, to comment on the state of discourse specifically about the U.S.-China relationship, because I know that's something that you've written about specifically. Uh, how do you, you know, when you see this talk about uh, great power competition and even people, uh, you know, I would say not who are not outside the blob, they're not so far out on the fringe that they're outside the mainstream, but they're maybe on the fringe of the mainstream, if that makes sense, uh, who talk about, you know, talk almost as though there's an inevitable military conflict that's going to happen at some point uh, between the U.S. and China. Where do you, you know, when you hear that kind of stuff, uh, what's your impression of, uh, you know, where things stand with the U.S. and China and, and uh, where they're headed? Yeah, I wrote an essay about this uh, in the New York Times, I think, uh, about a month and a half ago that essentially warned that we need to slow down. Uh, when it comes to China, that we are fast moving toward um, a new alignment in our domestic politics that casts China as uh, an existential enemy and uh, mandates a Cold War style of containment against Chinese power. And I think that there's no question that uh, if China continues to rise in East Asia, as I expect that it will, this will be a difficult challenge and certainly a defining challenge in the international politics of of East Asia uh, for quite some time. And I, I have no particular deep sympathy with the Chinese ruling party. That's for sure. At the same time, I think I, I really fear that a policymaking class that never learned anything from its travails in the Middle East over two decades is now applying its uh, same mentality to East Asia. It's starting from the premise that the overarching U.S. vital objective is to maintain military primacy in the region, which is rather ill-defined, and that essentially any challenger to that position by virtue of their rising power, add to that the authoritarian nature of China, uh, warrants uh, a sustained and very costly campaign to maintain the margins of superiority that the United States enjoyed in the 1990s. I think that that kind of framework, if that's going to be the the premise from which the subsequent debate takes place, I, I, I think we, we could have a very dangerous uh, future. So that that troubles me. And I think that um, there's a certain novelty in this moment toward catching up with all the uh, dubious and objectionable things that, that China does, whether it's in terms of human rights, uh, its economic practices, uh, its military buildup in the South China Sea and the East China Sea. Um, it allows one to sound fresh, and in an era in which the pressure to end endless wars in the Middle East has has mounted, it's a way of saying, yeah, let's let's uh, let's honor those demands to end endless war, and instead contain China. But I think that we need to think strategically 
um, about what the ultimate objectives are vis-a-vis -vis China. Uh, and uh, we need to take an overall assessment that it factors in uh, climate change, for example. I, I just don't see how we are going to realistically address what is a greater, in my view, a greater uh, threat to the American people where they live and work, uh, climate change, if the leading two emitters of carbon in the world are squaring off in an open-ended military confrontation. That's a recipe for getting back into the Middle East, if only to deny China the ability to cut off the flow of oil to us and vice versa for, for China. You said two things, actually, in that response that I, I want to kind of, um, you know, ask you to uh, kind of go into more detail about. One uh, was the emergence of this attitude that China is an existential threat to the United States. And I think that's uh, an excellent way to look at the scramble, you know, what I would say is the scramble for meaning uh, that the foreign policy community in D.C. has gone through since the end of the Cold War, when you could argue there was a legitimate existential threat to the United States uh, in the form of a, a nuclear war with the Soviet Union. Uh, ever since then, it seems like there's been this manic drive to kind of develop a new existential threat that we can all focus on. And for a while it was, right. uh, you know, the rogue states that might get weapons of mass destruction. And then it was terrorists who might get weapons of mass destruction. Uh, and now it seems to be China. Is is that uh, a function, do you think, of uh, a, a sort of establishment? And I don't just mean kind of uh, the people on t at the top of the establishment, but the way that people are trained uh, in universities, the way that think tanks have operated for decades, that they've just been built around this notion of a threat and, and kind of uh, focusing on a threat. And when that threat went away, they just had to find a new one or make a new one because it, that was easier, I guess, in a sense, than kind of redeveloping the or you know, rethinking uh, the worldview is that is that part of the problem with with the way DC in general approaches foreign policy? It's part of the problem with the DC officialdom. It's also I th I do think to be fair to them we need to bring in American domestic politics to this as well. You know, there's a good number of people uh, in the sort of liberal internationalist types, uh, let's say around the Brookings Institution who would, you know, if left to their own devices, I would guess be perfectly fine not stigmatizing an enemy too much and rather making the defense of the U.S.-led liberal international order into the sort of main frame for American policy. The problem is that that doesn't get you very far, uh, in addition to there being uh contradictions between the U.S.-led part and the liberal international order part, and even contradictions in pieces of the so-called liberal international order, because different international laws and norms point in different directions, there comes a, a, a problem in terms of domestic le legitimacy. Why should the American people make significant sacrifices to fund uh, a Pentagon that uh, is better funded than those of its uh, next eight counterparts uh, in addition to fighting the actual wars. And so what we get are uh, politicians 
as well as people in D.C. who uh, come to the conclusion that an enemy is uh, what's needed in order to sell the argument. And this is reminiscent of the early days of the Cold War when Secretary of State Dean Acheson uh, decided that what was needed to sell the Marshall Plan was to scare the hell out of the American people. I, what I'm saying is a, a bit of a schematic view because in actual practice, the large military establishment of the United States uh, you know, genuinely convinces some Americans that we have enemies. And there's a certain rationality to saying that, let's say, Iran is a, is a major enemy to vital U.S. objectives when we have defined those vital U.S. objectives as uh, maintaining uh, dominance in the region of the Middle East. So all these things loop back and interact. And so what we have, I think, particularly with the rise of, uh, of our current president, is years of inflated threats coming back uh, into the body politic and creating this kind of Frankenstein who whose central pitch uh, for in his political campaign, in his movement, is that the United States faces foreign enemies that want to kill us. And we need to take that seriously. And everyone previously has been weak and stupid. <laughs> the the other thing that I wanted to, to get into, you know, uh, push on here a little bit uh, is the notion of climate change because if there is an existential threat uh it's climate change and and you can't sort of hang that on a single enemy and say okay this is this is the target uh which maybe is part of the reason why it it feels like pulling teeth sometimes to get uh the the sort of foreign policy community in dc to focus on climate change there's also though uh, the the idea that you cannot this is not a problem that can be tackled uh, through uh, competition or through kind of policing everybody or through <clears throat> kind of shoving everybody into this international order that you've designed it, it has to be more collaborative than that is is there a, a, a disconnect between the way that the foreign policy community is wired up and the nature of the problem that we're facing in terms of climate change. I'm asking, you know, can the United States basically, um, is, is climate change the kind of thing that people are wired up to uh, understand and deal with, or is it, you know, t sort of challenging the, the way the community is set up in a, in a fundamental way? We're certainly not going to be bombing our way out of climate change. And that's not quite uh, the argument that people in D.C. are making, but they are ignoring the fact that in order to establish the d degree of international cooperation necessary to address climate change on the scale that it occurs, which is the scale of the planet, we are going to have to make a very strong effort to tamp down a security competition, uh, both in order to restrain our own greenhouse em gas emissions from the military and to get other countries uh, to join us in an effort 
to decarbonize rapidly. And I've been alarmed just as I've kind of gotten to know the D.C. Uh, policy scene more over the past several years, how little genuinely strategic thinking is going on when it comes to climate change. I mean, there's a notion that, well, yeah, we can have this far-flung security competition with China as the organizing principle of American foreign policy, and somehow on climate, the two countries will find their way to cooperate because they both have an interest in doing so at the same time. Really? Is that really what's going to happen? Uh, that at least presumes <laughs> that what's happening already uh, is satisfactory because those same interests already exist. And I don't see the, the actions on either side that, uh, that are nearly adequate to address the, the climate crisis. So this is a big, you know, I, I think what's happening right now, if I can just pull back um, in this moment is yes, there's increasing alarm about the rise of China economically and militarily and the assertion of Russia. But on the other hand, more and more of the American people, especially on the Democratic side, recognize that the biggest actual threats to us don't come from state competitors. They come from transnational and planetary challenges, climate change chief among them. So I do have some hope that uh, through the American people expressing their concerns uh, and through people like, oh, I don't know, the folks who the Quincy Institute will eventually hire once we fully launch. <laughs> uh, we, we, we might be able to, uh, we might just be able to um, make a significant difference in this, in this fight. I want to get into to talking about the, the place you see Quincy kind of fitting into the, the DC ecosystem. But uh, before we, get into that where in your view you've already mentioned domestic politics and sort of the pressure of uh, justifying a, a large military budget which comes from uh, you know a lot of places that that uh, you know have to do with uh, who's whining and dining congressmen and and you know what what lobbyists are up to sort of for the defense industry um, beyond that, or, or, you know, you can talk more about that if you want, but beyond that, what are some of the other things that kind of create this, um, again, it's not a, a tightly focused consensus, but there is a, a sort of general foreign policy consensus. There's the notion, you know, the sort of treatment of anything military as fundamentally serious while you know people who talk about non-intervention are always treated kind of shunted off as you know unserious people uh there's sort of this broad kind of uh, I, I almost group think i guess uh about foreign policy in dc where does that come from in addition to you know what are some of the other factors besides uh, domestic politics that, that have created that and sort of the, the Cold War kind of framework carrying through and uh, into the present day. Are there other things that you see as problematic from, from that standpoint? One thing I'd mention is that the costs of America's overly militarized foreign policy are just not well understood and they fall upon people in a diffuse way. So if you look at public opinion surveys, a lot of the American people generally are 
I think, better elite, uh, excuse me, better disposed to what the Quincy Institute stands for than what, uh, you know, the top five think tanks in Washington, D.C. stands for. But the, there's a classic problem, which is that you have concentrated power and interest, and it basically points in one direction. Let's do more militarily. Let's boost the Pentagon budget. Uh, and then you have lobbyists from uh, the top five defense uh, firms, uh, which are predominant. So, you know, in some sense, this is a difficult problem. In another sense, with more competition of ideas uh, and by making the costs of our military conflicts very apparent, it is possible to get this onto, onto the agenda, the political agenda, in a more significant way. We've seen in episodes that citizens are willing to step up uh, and let their representatives know uh, that they don't want, let's say, a strike on Syria, or they support the Iran nuclear deal. We've seen episodic victories, and we've seen very unlikely presidential candidates, our last two presidents, uh, win primaries in no small part because of their vigorous opposition to endless wars in the Middle East, especially the Iraq war. So there are moments when this is creeping through. What we need is a more systematic conversation. And I think the current moment where we have essentially a nativist movement in this country uh, is one that is ripe to, for people to understand that if we continue along this path of creating enemies, inflating enemies, causing, whether in reality or in our own imaginations, foreigners to want to constantly kill us, even though we're spending way more than anyone else on defense, so-called defense, we are going to have more nativism in this country and we're going to be more divided at home. So we need to reclaim our civic life. That, I think, is a massive argument that is essentially not being made uh, and very much needs to be. So let's talk about Quincy, where the genesis for the Quincy Institute emerged, how did, how did that emerge and how much of it, uh, you know, is, is based on, as you say, this moment that we find ourselves in with this very, let's say, unique president uh, and, you know, the, the kind of, I would argue, the, the spotlight that he's inadvertently turned on us as a nation, both in, ter in domestic terms in the way that we relate to, um, you know, vulnerable communities here uh, and in foreign policy terms in the way that, uh, you know, almost, I mean, unintentionally, uh, he seems to keep asking uh, questions <laughs> to which you know, the foreign policy community doesn't necessarily have great answers, like, why are we in Syria, for example, you know, things like that. Um, how much of the, the, the idea for Quincy came out of like, hey, this is a really unique time to, to do something like this? And how much of it is just sort of, uh, you know, the buildup of decades and decades of frustration uh, or years and years, at least, of frustration over the way that uh, foreign policy is discussed in Washington? 
Yeah, it's both. And an interesting question would be, you know, if uh, Marco Rubio or, or someone like that had uh, won the Republican nomination and the presidency, would we be doing this right now? Um, I think I, don't, I, I personally would have the same foreign policy views, but I don't know. I don't know the answer to that because just speaking personally, I do think that Trump's victory exposed um, a number of surprising things, starting with the fact that um, he made a roughly anti-war pitch to the right. Uh, (laughs) But at the very least, he was, I think, frequently heard to have made an anti-war pitch, and he was criticized for doing so by most of the foreign policy establishment. And voters turned around and said, great, on the right. Yes, that's why we like them. Sounds good to me. So that was somewhat surprising. To me, it also exposed how much, I mean, I started to write more essays uh, interpreting Trump myself and also uh, critiquing the mainstream lines of uh, opposition to Trump. To me, I was just struck by how badly Trump was misinterpreted during the campaign as some sort of isolationist. I mean, that was the prevailing line, and you still hear it today, including in uh, news articles where something so tendentious should not be stated as fact. And it was wrong from the start because Trump has always promised on some level, however vaguely, to take things from the world. to turn the tables on a vicious world that, in his view, is exploiting us. That's not a recipe for isolationism, or whatever the term isolationism is supposed to refer to, I guess, anti-interventionism. So I I was upset about that, and uh, and it was clear that uh, folks in D.C. in in opinion pages weren't learning uh, from their own failure to have any impact and connect with voters uh in the 2016 election i think yeah i mean (laughs) the sort of uh watching trump directly take on the iraq war even though he did it in a way that was basically lying about his own record and all of that stuff but in the debates to watch him go after jeb directly i mean over the failure of the iraq war was just shocking for a republican presidential campaign and and then as you say to, to see voters uh kind of turn around and say yeah okay i i buy that 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 makes sense to me uh it, it was a sort of remarkable moment uh however opportunistic it was on trump's part it was sort of a a a, a fascinating thing to see uh, what is the quincy institute going to to be, I mean, I know you guys aren't fully up and running yet. There's no you know, product coming out yet. But uh, broadly speaking, where, what kind of role do you see the, the Quincy Institute filling in this uh, ecosystem of uh, foreign policy in Washington? We've talked a little bit about the, the basic agenda, the orientation, uh, which is to promote ideas that end endless war and the conditions that cause them and move U.S. foreign policy toward vigorous diplomacy in the pursuit of international peace. I think that uh, we're going to have a focus, initially at least, 
on the Middle East and East Asia. We think those are uh, two very important uh, regions where uh, our voice could could make a significant impact. I think on the Middle East, uh, coming back to your earlier question, uh, we've seen Republican presidents, Democratic presidents, uh, responsible, fundamentally responsible decision makers, fundamentally irresponsible, reckless, and aggressive decision makers over several decades, and none of them have gotten us to where we need to be. And we think the fundamental problem, uh, the reason why the Iran nuclear deal was uh, achieved on borrowed time, uh, is that we've had the wrong basic strategic approach. Uh, that one of, in short, no permanent allies and no permanent enemies uh, would be a much better posture that will lead us uh, to not constantly uh, inflating enemies and getting ourselves into endless wars. And in East Asia, we've also talked about that. I think this uh, has issue has been moving very quickly, and I think it's, it's one that will be uh, fundamentally important over the coming decades and uh, that space should not be monopolized by those who are just so quick to demonize China uh, and act as though we must regard uh, the uh, Ch China and its regime as fundamentally illegitimate uh, and get us into a a new Cold War that, frankly, would be a lot less defensible at this point than the than the original item. We're also going to have uh, two programs that cut across regions, one that I'll be directing called Ending Endless War, and that'll allow us to make, uh, uh, to put forward positive ideas for American grand strategy, for what we should do with uh, our sprawling military bases, uh, how do we responsibly uh, reduce our defense budget in line with the uh, uh, strategic options of the United States. So should be connected to our strategy when right now uh, the actual appropriations process is, is not. Uh, and we have a program that I'm really excited about called De Democratizing Foreign Policy, which recognizes that we need a much wider conversation with new people uh, and one that connects to the American people as well. So we want to um, we, we want to encourage a debate not just by uh, putting forward bold alternatives to the status quo, but by going out to people uh, where they live and work, connecting with people in marginalized communities, uh, and also encouraging Congress to assert its prerogatives on foreign policy, uh, which is starting to happen. Uh, and I think this is one of the other heartening developments in the last uh, couple years, is the assertion of congressional war powers over Yemen uh, and in a few other cases. It still needs to happen uh, much more so, but this is an issue that we want to um, we want to promote because over time we think that a more democratic foreign policy will be a more peaceful foreign policy as well. I wanted to ask you um, a couple of questions about the Institute, sort of responding to what I can already see are some of the emerging uh, questions that people have or uh, criticisms even that people have kind of even before things get started. Uh, the gimme, I think, and one you've already addressed to some degree earlier in, in this interview, uh, is 
the argument that non-interventionism or you know more responsible uh, use of diplomacy amounts to isolationism. This is the sort of knee-jerk response that um, anybody gets when they talk. I mean, even Donald Trump got it, though he's in no way an isolationist. Um, you know, when they talk about or question uh, sort of the the militaristic foreign policy, the endless wars, the the uh, the status quo, basically. Um, but I, it's a it's a gimme, quite you know, sort of for you to kind of knock that down. But I also wanted because uh, I know you've written and and researched uh, the sort of the phenomenon of what's sometimes called liberal interventionism. Uh, which is the notion that the United States, uh, you know, from people who would say, I oppose things like the Iraq War, I don't want to go to war with Iran, I don't want to do this, I don't want to do that, uh, but who would look at something like uh, what's happening in Myanmar to the Rohingya or what happened to the Yazidis in Iraq or, uh, you know, the, the sort of granddaddy uh, kind of, uh, of of that scenario is, of course, the, the Rwanda genocide. We look at things like that and say... Uh, maybe there's a, a, a role for the United States to play in situations like that in terms of intervening and trying to stop those things. So, you know, talk about the the sort of canard, the isolations of canard more generally, but also I, I'd like to get your sense on, uh, you know, how you grapple with questions about legitimate humanitarian crises and, and what the what's the role that the United States should play in those situations. Great. So just on the isolationism point, this is a term that is used by interventionists to tell people that the choices are total domination or total isolation. It's absurd. Uh, and I think the American people are catching on when you consider how little the electorate cared when candidate Trump was floridly denounced as an isolationist by the uh, entire foreign policy establishment in Washington. So, uh, you know, we could get on to uh, a sort of empirical refutation of the idea that the United States was ever really isolationist, given that it was pretty much constantly expanding its power throughout its history. Uh, but I think that's really the bottom line. This is not a term that anybody, I, I would be the last person to self-identify as an isolationist. I think I'm, you know, an internationalist. I think I'm an internationalist who recognizes that the United States uh, uh, reserving the prerogative to itself to be the sole superpower, use force wherever and however it likes. The United States uh, is not acting in a way that uh, can transcend power politics and establish a rules-based order, quite the contrary. So I'm happy to reclaim internationalism. I just think we have to detach it from uh, its current over-identification with uh, U.S. hard power. With respect to the humanitarian intervention question, um, yeah, this is a, a question I've, I've thought a lot about. And, you know, uh, the Quincy Institute is certainly not about, uh, we're, we're not pacifists, and I am... I, I think that, you know, a, a responsible American president, when faced with situations of grave atrocity, mass killing, uh, should take that very seriously and should seriously assess uh, what the United States can do 
in order to achieve a positive humanitarian outcome. But as I go back and I read our own history of uh, interventions undertaken for partly or mainly humanitarian reasons, uh, and I look at our record uh, of the use of force more broadly, and you could add to that the record of other uh, great powers in, in doing so over a couple hundred years, um, I don't see many uh, success stories in which the use of force uh, clearly achieves a positive humanitarian outcome for people on the ground. And so, you know, I, I would never close the door to, to humanitarian intervention, but I think that the burden should clearly be on uh, those uh, who favor it to show the specific plan that they favor and explain why, given all that we know about the um, difficulty uh, of transforming other societies through the use of force, because that's what we're talking about when when uh, a uh, an ethnic cleansing or a mass killing is, is, is going on. Why in this particular case, through this particular way, should we believe that this time it's different and uh, we can actually help people on the ground? So in, in general, uh, I, I think the fundamental problem is that we identify doing something with the use of force, first and foremost. When a humanitarian catastrophe is occurring, engagement could very well take the form of uh, helping refugees, providing relief where they are, welcoming in refugees to the United States and elsewhere. Uh, measures like that, providing humanitarian assistance, that is engagement, uh, much more than is dropping bombs and killing people. In no other context, it seems, besides U.S. foreign relations, do we identify engagement with, in the first instance, using force to kill and maim people. So, you know, uh, I, I think we've got to sort of find a way to transcend this problem while not shutting the door on the use of force in circumstances where it really does seem likely that it could uh, make a significant difference for people on the ground. So the second question uh, along these lines that I had, and the, the big sort of uh, revelation, uh, or one of them at least, when uh, the Quincy Institute made its initial debut and you know was being written about in, in uh, uh, newspapers and other outlets, you know, other media outlets, uh, the big revelation was that this is a, a think tank that's being funded by George Soros and the Koch brothers, uh, who don't otherwise kind of overlap in any way politically. Um, and and that was you know one of the things that that I think hit people um, immediately was wow you know how how did they get how did they, like these guys coalesce around anything let alone you know you know how did that uh, come to be? But I think it it also has. Uh, raise questions on both the the right, which uh, has its issues with George Soros. I don't understand them. I'm not on the right. It doesn't, you know. I don't uh, know. You know. I don't fully internalize what those problems are. Uh, but the left, you know, with its it has issues with the Koch brothers, and and there are concerns. And I can speak more to those concerns. I think, um, you know, people who wonder if. Uh, the 
way that the Quincy Institute goes about kind of addressing questions of foreign policy is going to reflect in any way um, the, the, the nature of its funding. Um, and, you know, on the left, that would mean, you know, are there going to be, is this going to be a place where um, you can critique capitalism, for example, as part of the, the rationale for the endless wars or as part of the, the, uh, the sort of thing that feeds this foreign policy beast in Washington? So from both perspectives, as I say, you know, you're going to take questions on this from both left and right. Uh, how do you, you know, how do you address those concerns? Yeah, the number one reaction to the news that we were forming seemed to be, my mind is blown. Wait a minute. <laughs> Soros, Coke, uh, and then they're funding a think tank that promotes peace. <laughs> you know, so the so-called maybe globalists and the so-called isolationists, uh, people were uh, confused, interested, titillated, and I, I think that's fine. Um, just to clarify, so you know, they, two of our of our initial donors are uh, George Soros's Open Society Foundations and Charles Koch's uh, Charles Koch's Institute. So these are through their foundations. Uh, I think it's a real asset for us to be perfectly honest with you. So as I uh, contemplated leaving my academic uh, career and I thought I kind of squarely confronted for the first time the question of okay how are we going to what is the plan for taking on the military industrial complex as President Eisenhower called it and we could add a couple hyphens to that now military industrial intellectual think tank whatever you want what's going to make a difference and I think that the transpartisan, the nonpartisan and transpartisan nature of this institute uh, is essential. Uh, I think it's essential to unite forces on the left and right who favor a shift away from a foreign policy based on militarism and an attempt at domination. And I think un unless those forces work together, uh, we are just not going to be able to take on the very powerful entrenched uh, forces that are, are already in D.C. and are now taking our foreign policy to to new terrifying depths uh, as we seem to be perpetually on the verge of a war with Iran for reasons that no one can really defend um, and boosting defense spending further for a president that no one believes has a strategy uh, or a, a sense of moral uh, purpose for his power. So I think this is, you know, an essential step to changing our foreign policy conversation. And I genuinely think that um, we have an opportunity not to check our differences at the door, but rather to converge around a different paradigm for a foreign policy. So what I think you'll see the Quincy Institute doing, and we've already done it in this conversation uh, to some degree, uh, it, it isn't saying uh, we're going to not talk about all of our different reasons for thinking that uh, our foreign policy is overly militarized. Uh, 
but rather here they will we'll, we'll make them all we'll make all the arguments you know uh a a member of the quincy institute should say what they believe are the leading reasons why uh our endless wars have been so costly both at home and abroad uh and let's just see if we can work together uh around a a common goal that we genuinely do converge on so my last question um, is, have you thought, as you've kind of been conceiving of the Quincy Institute, have you thought ahead to a point, you know, and obviously you want this place to be around for a long time, and I'm not asking you to sort of uh, predict how it's going to how it's going to affect the, the landscape for, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of lifetime of existence, but is there in your head... Uh, a place in you know 10 years or 15 years some some defined period of time where you could look back and and look at one particular thing and say if we've done x or if we've changed the discussion in this way uh, i will consider this project to have been a success is there anything like that that's kind of gone through your mind uh, over this process (laughs) that's a great question and I'm sure that our objectives will evolve in real time. You know, I think right now, uh, reorienting our Middle East strategy so that uh, we no longer, the United States no longer has uncritical alliances with one uh, set of forces in the region and produces. Uh, total enmities with another set of forces in the region. That would be a, a, a clear area where I can see, I can just about see how we get from here to there. Uh, not having many bases in the region would be another tangible, uh, tangible goal. And I think, um, you know, we will be introducing the principles of responsible statecraft. You know, maybe in the largest sense, having a foreign policy discussion that is uh, understands American engagement to be fundamentally peaceful engagement, rather than fetishizes the use of force as some kind of acid test of engagement. That would be another. Uh, longer-term goal, and it would mean a complete conceptual renovation of our foreign policy discussion. So those are just some uh, some of my initial reactions to that question, but it's a very good one. Well, we'll, we'll have you back again to discuss that at some point, right? how <laughs> things are going. Uh, Stephen Wertheim, thank you very much for being here, and best of luck in the uh, the Quincy Institute, as you guys roll out, uh, I'll have a link to the uh, to your website in the show description so people can check it out for themselves. Uh, and, uh, you know, yeah, thanks again. Thank you so much. This was a really fun conversation. And the website is quincyinst.org. That is quincyinst.org. We'll have a link in the show description, so don't worry about that. Fantastic. All right. <laughs> thanks, Stephen. Thank you. 
I want to thank Stephen Wertheim once more, the co-founder of the Quincy Institute, for coming on and sharing his time and answering my questions. Uh, I'd also like to thank my dog, April, for her valuable contributions to today's episode. Uh, For those of you who are subscribers, uh, I will be back next week with you. Uh, If you're not a subscriber but you'd like to think about maybe becoming a subscriber, please go to fx.substack.com check that out also check out the quincy institute i'll have a link to their website in the show description Uh, for all of you as always uh, thanks for listening and i'll talk to you soon take care bye-bye